rapid-fire statements and some of those rapid-fire exhortations, some of them seem to be a little bit disconnected from each other, just like God was listing off some random thoughts. But what we found was, and what we've done is at the end of each message is, is we've looked at three verses for the last, this will be the third week in a row, we're looking at three verses. And what we've done at the end is just kind of tied it all together and just looked at how it is that these three verses that kind of seem like they don't connect actually completely intertwine, and and we're going to do that this morning. So as we continue looking at this extremely practical section of the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the next verse from where we left off last week, we see that number one on your study sheet, we see that we're to abstain from all appearance of evil. We're to abstain from all appearance of evil. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5.22 teaches us. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. And just to make sure that we're, we're grasping exactly what God says here, because the key to the word of God are the words of God. And, and so just so that we're pulling that all together and just so that we're, we're tracking with exactly what it says i want us to make sure we all notice that this verse doesn't simply say abstain from evil no it it says abstain or stay away from the appearance of evil but but not just the appearance of evil the appearance of all evil all appearance of evil We, we we haven't been commanded to just simply stay away from evil. No, God says, stay away from anything that looks like it could be evil. You see, God has always been extremely clear as to what our relationship with evil ought to be. This has never been any secret. Psalm 34 and verse 14, it says, Psalm 34 and verse 14, it says, depart from evil. Three chapters later in Psalm 37, 27, we see the same thing. Depart from evil. The book of Proverbs, it repeats this idea. Oh my goodness, over and over again, it repeats this idea. And in Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, it says, Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. Here's how you handle evil and wickedness. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it and pass away. And I'm not sure God could make that one any more clear. It isn't simply that we're not to involve ourselves in evil. It's that we're not even to pass by it and we're not even to get close to it. In the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 2.19, at the end of the verse, it says, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And the sad truth is, in, in many cases, those that name the name of Christ are perfectly cool with sticking around iniquity and staying around evil. We're, we're perfectly fine flirting with iniquity. And evil. We're perfectly fine walking right on the edge there and just getting as close as we can get. And all through the Bible, God is telling us this isn't something to play around with. 
This isn't something you mess with. It's so serious, in fact, that you should depart from evil if it's around. You should avoid evil if you already know where it is. And then in the verse we're studying right now, it got up to the ante and says we should stay away from even the things that appear to be evil. God has never taken this thing of evil lightly. And, and, and listen, b- before I go any further with this verse this morning, I understand the way that this verse has been abused through the years to condemn you for just anything anybody doesn't like. It's kind of like a, it can be a catch-all. And, and so it, it is important for us to just continue tracing this concept through Scripture to get a better grasp on what it is that God is talking about here. For for example, take a look with me at Romans 14. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about there's those that, that believe that you can eat all things, and there's others that believe that there should be foods that are off limits for believers. And then, and then he talks about those that believe that every day should be treated the same, and others believe that certain days should be exalted and certain days should be esteemed higher in accordance with the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. And what Paul's saying here is, is he's saying, hey, don't judge each other over that kind of stuff because in both cases, both parties are doing what they're doing for the Lord. The the one that eats and the one that doesn't and the one that esteems a day higher than another and and the guy that doesn't, they're, they're, they're both doing it in good conscience before the Lord. And then here's what Paul says, starting in verse 13 of Romans 14. He says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. He's saying, don't judge each other on those kinds of things. But judge this, rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. So listen, Paul says... We shouldn't be judging th- each other over these types of things, as they over one food over the or or not, or one day esteemed higher than the other or not. But but here's what we should be judging. There's something we should be judging. We should be judging whether or not our behavior could be a stumbling block to one of our brothers and sisters out there. Verse 15 teaches us if your brother or sister if they're grieved that something that you're doing or something you're involved in and and it could be a potential stumbling block to them or or in other words it could encourage them down a path that causes them to stumble if that's the case because of charity and because of the love in your heart for that brother or your love in your heart for that sister you shouldn't keep doing whatever it is that you're doing so that it doesn't destroy them and cause them to stumble in some extreme way. And then verse 16, it lays out this incredible principle that I want to make sure that we see this morning. It says, let not then your good be evil spoken of. In other words, even if what we're doing is good and beneficial and profitable to us, out of charity, we should back up and back off 
so that our brother or sister doesn't stumble as a result and our good is evil spoken of. Are you following that? Again, there are certain things that we ought not to judge each other about. That, that shouldn't be happening. But if it happens, and, we're being and what we're being judged about has the potential to be a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister out of love for them, stop what you're doing so that your good isn't evil spoken of. That brother or sister, they're somebody that Christ died for. Listen, this thing is so much bigger than just us. That's why a couple verses later in, in verses 19 through 21 of Romans 14, it, it says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. You see, you see a stumbling block is what is going to cause us to make each other fall. But we're to be following after and proactively pursuing and promoting peace in ways that we can edify and build each other up, not, not make each other fall. Verse 20, for meat destroy not the work of God. He says, listen, pay attention. Don't destroy the working of God in someone else's life over some stinking meat, man. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for that man who eateth with, with offense. You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with the meat. In this case, but, but you know what is wrong and, and you know what is evil? When we do things, even good and beneficial things that are offensive to others, it's evil for that man that eats with offense. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Even if what we're doing is good for us, even if what we're doing is beneficial for us, if it's causing a brother to stumble and be offended or be made weak, then we ought to stop doing what we're doing because if it's causing someone else to stumble, then it becomes evil even if whatever it is that's causing to them to stumble is not inherently evil in and of itself. We can do something that's actually good and it becomes evil if it causes someone else to stumble. And so with that being the case, for the same reason, we should abstain from the appearance of evil in our lives. If whatever you're doing could look like you're up to no good, then you abstain from that thing. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, Paul's talking about something very similar. He's talking about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. He essentially says, listen, you guys are at, at liberty to eat this meat because these idols are nothing anyway. There's only one true God. What are these idols anyway? But then verse 9 says, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. He says, you've got the liberty to eat this meat, but listen, Take heed or make sure you're, you're seeing and perceiving if what you're doing is for any reason 
becoming a stumbling block to somebody else. In verse 12, it's saying to us that doing this, this thing that you're even at liberty by God to do, if it causes someone else to stumble, if it, it causes them to, have a, to wound their weak conscience, you sin against them, and you even sin against Christ. And in verse 13, check out the attitude that Paul had to the thought of all that. Did you catch that? He, the, Paul's attitude towards this whole thing, he says, wherefore, or because of these truths that I just rattled off, as long as the world stands, you aren't going to catch me eating any meat if it offends my brother or sister. It's not worth it, man. I, I, and I'm, I'm actually surprised that the vegans and the vegetarians haven't gotten a hold of that verse and, and, and really ran with that thing till the cows come home. But, but, but you see... No, well, no pun intended on that either, actually. The <laughs> but, you, but you see, the, the question we're ultimately called to ask ourselves, y'all, it, it isn't, is it right? The, 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 the question is, will it hurt my brother or sister? If it will hurt them or cause them harm, then don't do it and don't do anything that would appear evil. 2 Corinthians 8, 21, it, it says we're to provide for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. That's interesting, isn't it? Shouldn't doing right in the sight of the Lord be enough? It seems like it should be. But, but it says not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Because what's honest in the sight of the Lord can sometimes appear evil in the sight of men. And so God, God, God doesn't tell us, hey, if it's right in my eyes and you have a chapter and a verse, then if a brother stumbles, then you tell those suckers to go pound sand. No, God says, do what's honest before God and before man. And if you know what you're doing is honest before God, but it becomes clear that it's not honest before men, then out of love for others, you stop doing it. But, but here's, here's how we catch ourselves responding to these kind of situations. Hang on just a minute. I'm not doing anything wrong here. I, it may have the appearance of evil, but, I'm, but it's not evil. I have every right to do what I'm doing. Is that how you see your life? as having rights. It, it, is it, I, I thought we gave up our rights when God bought us with a price. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 6.20 explicitly tells us? That, that our lives are not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price. And when that happened, we laid down our rights. We talk about being Laodiceans around here a lot. We're, 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 we're not cold, we're not hot, we're lukewarm. That, that's, that's what defines the day and time we're living in according to Revelation 3, 15 and 16. That, that's what defines it. But, but do you remember what Laodicea actually means? Do you remember what that word means? It means the rights of the people. The thing that defines the period of time that we're currently living in is that we straddle the fence, 
We're not cold and we're not hot. We're lukewarm. And God says, that makes me so sick, I want to throw up. And Laodicea just so happens to mean the rights of the people, which is a great description of how we tend to live our lukewarm Christian lives. So when we're causing a brother or sister to stumble and we stand on the fact that we have every right to do whatever it is we're doing, we're just acting like a bunch of lukewarm Laodiceans. That's what people do that are lukewarm. They don't care if it causes harm to others because they have every right to do whatever it is that they're doing. Well, they shouldn't be offended so easily. Yes, in a lot of cases, you are probably right. And, and, and I would encourage all of us to grow in our faith and not be so prone to being offended and so prone to stumbling. But when whatever you're doing is being a stumbling block or you can perceive that whatever you're doing could be a stumbling block, then you forget about your rights and your justifications to keep doing what you're doing and you stop doing it. And you abstain from whatever it is that's appearing evil because that person you could be causing to go down a destructive path is a person that Jesus died for and a person that you've been called to love. But I've got liberty in Christ. Listen, we're living in a day and time where we have gotten really acquainted with our liberty in Christ. But in the midst of that, somehow along the way, I think we've forgotten about how what we're doing appears to and affects other people. Because keep in mind, y'all, there's always somebody watching you. And there's always somebody looking up to you. It could be a friend. It could be your kids. It could be your brother or your sister, your nieces or your nephews, that guy that doesn't believe that you work with. Everywhere we go, people are watching our lives, and it can have a major effect on others. My, my parents used to say to me, my sister's five years younger than me, and so my parents used to say, just remember, everything you do, your little sister's watching you. And that was a sobering statement for me because I wouldn't have wanted to cause her to stumble for anything in the world. And that's the way it is for someone in all of our lives. They're watching and they're influenced by what we do. Our decisions never affect just us. And we're to abstain from all appearance of evil. And, and then in, in the next verse, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, the next thing that, that Paul rattles off for us is, is that, number two, we're to be wholly sanctified and blameless. We're to be wholly sanctified and blameless. Verse 23 says, In the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Being wholly sanctified is something we see that God does and something that Paul prays for. But, but, but what is it exactly? What does being wholly sanctified mean? Letter A, what, what, it, what it means. Holy sanctified is spelled w-h-o-l-l-y not 
H-O-L-Y. Holy as in, as in completely sanctified. Holy as in every single part of us sanctified means to be set apart. We are, are called to be sanctified or, or to be set apart. We're, we're to be set apart from the world and we're to be set apart unto righteousness. We're, we're to be set apart from something and we're to be set apart to something. And we're to be wholly sanctified or set apart. Every last part of us is to be set apart from sin and unto the Lord. And this verse gives us the definition, actually, of being wholly sanctified. He goes into details in verse 23 that we just read. Being wholly sanctified means our whole spirit and our whole soul and our whole body is set apart and blameless. You see, just like God is three in one, God created us as three in one as well. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says that, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God is pointing to, if you notice, he's pointing to the plurality of the Godhead. He, or or when, when he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's he talking to? The other members of the Godhead. God is comprised of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about that last week. And we are comprised of a spirit, soul, and body. We're three, yet, yet we're one because we're created in God's likeness. And, and God's so serious about every part of us being sanctified that, that he literally rattles off the composition of our entire being in this verse. And he says, now I want your whole spirit, your whole soul, and your whole body I want all of you to be set apart. Last week, we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, but we also have a human spirit. And, and our spirit and our soul, they're, they're very closely connected in, in, in the Bible. They're, they're very much intertwined. But we could say that our, our spirit is essentially the, it's the seat of our emotions. Uh, it, it's, it's your heart. It's your passions. God, and God says, I want your spirit, and I want your heart, and I want those emotions. I want them to be wholly set apart to me. Our, our soul, it's our inner being, it's our, it's our real self, it's who we really are, it's the essence of our being. And God says, I want all of you, all of the real you, all of who you really are, completely and entirely, wholly separated and sanctified unto me. Our, our bodies are our appetites, right? It's our, our appetites for sleep, for food. It's our sexual appetites. And God says, I want all of that. I want all those things for my purposes, and I want all of those things for my glory. I want you totally sanctified and blameless in every part of your being. I, I love how James chapter 1 and verse 27 describes this this same idea when he tells us at the end of the verse he says we're to we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world we, we've we've been having some storms recently right our 
our power was out for a few hours the other night. And God says, and what happens is, is that when you walk outside, you get spotted, don't you? You really, you, in this case, you really can't help it. That thing is pouring down rain and, and you get some spots on your clothes. And, and God is saying to us in the midst of all that's going on there, out there in the world, all that's being dumped on you when you leave your house and when you're in your house and everywhere you go, despite all those things that are going on out there in the world, God says, I want you to stay unspotted from all that stuff. Now, now of course, that's impossible if you're walking outside in the middle of a storm, but to stay unspotted in a spiritual sense is possible. God, God doesn't command us to be unspotted from the world if we're incapable of doing it. Yeah, we're in the midst of a system of evil that we live in. There's a bunch of filth out there in the world. There's a bunch of disgusting garbage. But in the midst of that, we're to keep ourselves unspotted from all of that. Yeah, it's everywhere, but we've got to stay unspotted from it. Ephesians 5.27 says it like this. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And we see this same idea, no spot, no blemish, no wrinkle, but, but holy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, it says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We as the church are to be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. And if all of this seems really radical to you, may I remind you of one of the reasons that God, that God designed marriage the way he did was to teach us how we're to relate to him. And we're the bride of Christ that is espoused to our one husband, as this verse says. And, and I think a lot of us have become okay towing the line at, let's call it, questionable behavior at best. We've become comfortable taking on the appearance of evil and flirting with that thing and dabbling in it some and maybe some full-fledged involvement in it. And we look around at everybody else and, and we use them as the standard to compare ourselves to, sometimes even subconsciously. You know, I think I'm doing pretty good because I've only got a few spots on my shirt. I've only got a couple barbecue sauce stains on my white T-shirt. And God's saying, I've called you to be spotless and to be a chaste virgin. So saying something like that is kind of like a, a wife saying to her friend, you know, I'm, I'm a great wife to my husband. I just love him so much. I mean, my whole world revolves around him, and I'm super faithful to him. In fact, I only cheat on him every once in a while. <laughs> oh, only every once in a while. Wow, yeah, that's wonderful. And when we see it like that, 
it's not so hard to understand why it is that God has called us to be spotless and set apart to him with every part and every fiber of our being and to be blameless and to be a chaste virgin to our husband because we don't expect one ounce less than that from our spouse, do we? Our marriage relationship really gives us some insight into why God calls us to what he calls us to. It sheds lights on just how reasonable of a request it actually is. God, the one that died for us, the one that bought us back and he paid for us, has now made us his bride. And imagine that he expects us to behave like someone that's married to him and married to him alone. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, it, it says that, that we're to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. We're to, we're to be blameless and harmless. We're to be wholly sanctified, free from any spot or blemish, a chaste virgin, because our lives are to look different. We're, we're the ones that have been called to shine God's light to the world. We're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, and now that Jesus, the light of the world, now that he ascended back up to the Father in heaven, we now shine as lights in the world. We're the light that he left. And as we live holy and completely sanctified lives and we live blameless lives, our light is shining out there to, to the world. And verse 16 says, we're to, we're to hold forth the word of life to the world. We're to hold forth that thing. God says the way this works is, is that we're to hold forth and proclaim God's word, the word of life. And as we're proclaiming his word, we do it from the backdrop of a holy, sanctified, and blameless life so that, so that our lives live up to our words. You know what he expects our lives to look like? He expects them to look like Daniel. Do you remember how, do you remember how sanctified and blameless Daniel was? He was so sanctified and blameless. He lived such a, a, a pure life that there were some guys that wanted to take him down and they followed him around, unbeknownst to him. And they, they followed him around trying to find some dirt on this guy. And they couldn't find anything. Daniel 6, 4, it, it says that, that then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So, so these guys can't find any dirt. They can't find any error. They can't find any fault in him. And they literally conspire against him. And they say, you know what, fellas? We're never going to find any dirt on this guy. In fact, it's going to be easier to get him if we make practicing his faith illegal and so they essentially tricked king darius into making praying illegal and that's how they got daniel thrown into the lion's den can you imagine 
The only way we're going to get dirt on this guy is to make it illegal to pray. What an incredible testimony that is. Now let me ask us something, though. Let's just say that over the last couple months, we didn't realize it, but there was a private investigator that was hired to follow us around and dig up some dirt on this guy. How would we do? I mean, they saw how we treated our spouse. They, they saw how we treated our kids. They saw what we talked about at work. They saw how we talk about other people when they're not around. They saw what we looked at on the Internet. They saw our attitude towards our parents. And they followed us around, and they saw all of those things. If somebody did that, would they, would they need to outlaw praying to find some dirt on us, or would they pretty quickly have a lot to go on? You see, Daniel was holy, sanctified, and blameless, and spotless. Something else I want us to understand about Daniel's life, though, is, is that what these guys did to Daniel does still exist to this day. It, it, because it is possible to be blamed and still be blameless like Daniel was. 1 Peter 3.16, it, it says, "...having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers..." that they may, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. There will be false accusers out there that speak evil of those that are actually blameless. But we're to have such a good conscience because of our holy, sanctified, and blameless lives that it should put those blaming us and those falsely accusing us to shame. Now again, that's not typically our problem our problem is typically that we're blamed because we're blameworthy or because we're causing a brother or sister to stumble or because we're doing things that have the appearance of evil or that are evil but it is possible to be falsely accused and when that happens our lives should be such that those doing it will be ashamed of themselves uh, uh, all right so we've seen what what being wholly sanctified and blameless means it means we're completely set apart from the world and unto God. And then next, I want us to see what being holy and sanctified and blameless does. Let her be on your study sheet what it does. Remember the beginning of this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. It, it says that being holy sanctified. Did you catch this when we read it? It said that being holy sanctified and preserved blameless it comes from who? The God of peace. That's who it comes from. Now, now listen, God didn't have to use any attributes here to describe himself. He 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 didn't he didn't there there he didn't have to do that. There are many other attributes as well that he could have used to describe himself. But here we see he specifically referred to as the God of of peace. We, we, we talked about being at peace among ourselves a few weeks or so ago. So, so we saw there that God is the, is the God of peace in our relationships with each other, but God is also the God of peace within ourselves and within our own hearts and within our own minds. Sometimes we're not at peace with each other. Sometimes we don't have peace within ourselves, and sometimes we don't have either. But God desires for us to have both, and we have access to both, because God is the God of all peace. 
And, and, and I want us to understand that, that one of the reasons that he is the God of all peace is because God's eternal nature is peace. God, listen, is at perfect peace with himself. All of his attributes that make him who he is are in harmony with all of his other attributes. But you see, here's what throws a wrench in it. Within us, we have a warfare that's going on inside of us between the flesh and the spirit. According to Galatians 5.17, that's exactly what's going on. The spirit lusts against the flesh, and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and those two things are at war with one another it's a war between who's gonna sit on the throne and call the shots is it gonna be the god of peace or is it gonna be the god of self our own flesh and what happens is when our flesh is sitting on the throne of our lives and calling the shots listen we're not at peace because our flesh is diametrically opposed to peace Because have you ever noticed that every sinful inclination that our flesh has ends up taking us down a path of chaos and destruction and when it is finished brings forth death? And so the only way that we can have inner peace in our lives and in our relationships is when the God of peace is sitting on the throne and he's the one calling the shots. Because that's when the Spirit is winning the war against the flesh. And when the Spirit is sitting on the throne and winning the war against the flesh, we will be living a holy, sanctified, and blameless life, won't we? When the God of peace is calling the shots, there will be peace in our lives. But the reason that many of us don't have peace in our lives is because we aren't submitted to the God of peace sitting on the throne of our lives. And because of that, we aren't wholly sanctified and blameless, and the flesh that lives inside of us is winning the war and taking us down a path of chaos and destruction. But when the God of peace, when he's sitting on the throne and and he is calling the shots and and the flesh is crucified and is in submission then there can be peace. It's the peace that comes from the God of peace. God is the source of our peace. Yeah, yeah, there are things on our end that are needful. We got to allow him to call the shots, which leads us to be holy, sanctified, and blameless. But God is the one that ultimately provides the peace. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. True peace is only found in Christ. He is the source. In John 14, 27, Jesus says it this way. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give a hand to you. Let not, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. My peace, Jesus says. True peace can only come from God. He is the only source. There is no other source. 
And again, maybe that's the reason that there are so few people with peace in their hearts today. Because it only comes from God himself. And he gives it to us as we live holy, sanctified, and blameless lives as a result of the God of peace sitting on the throne and calling the shots. There are those that are religious. There are those that attend church and have learned a lot about the Bible, but that in and of itself will not give you peace. The peace comes from God. It's the only real peace that's on this planet. And and I want to reiterate to you how it is that God actually does this work. God isn't up in heaven like Oprah Winfrey going, you get some peace, and you get some peace, and you get some peace. No, that, that's, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how he's doing it. Look at what 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says again. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Listen, Paul is letting us know that the way we really experience God's peace is by allowing God to complete his work of sanctification in our lives. Peace only comes from God. He's got to do it. We can't do it. However, he only does that work in those that choose to let him do it. So we make the choice and God makes the change. And that choice is is to completely submit to God and completely let go of everything we're hanging on to and allow God to be in his proper place, which is on the throne of our lives, calling the shots. What we're hanging on to, it it could be sin. It could even be things that we don't always think of as sin. It could be our own self-will that we're hanging on to, our desire for everything to go exactly the way we want it to go, which is a very normal desire. But when it gets outside of the bounds of, and when that desire supersedes our submission to God's will, that's when it becomes a problem. God's saying, let go of all that and submit to me as I sit on the throne of your life and call the shots, and I will give you my peace. When the God of peace is on the throne, he will give us his peace. And and it's a peace, it's, it's so great, it's a peace that's so supernatural that according to Philippians 4, 7, it It passes all understanding. We can't even comprehend how unbelievable this thing is. Listen to 2 Peter 3.14. It says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Do you see that? Are you listening to me as I read? Listen. Peace has to do with us living a life that is without spot from the world and blameless. This theme is everywhere. And then the end of verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is praying that God will sanctify us wholly and preserve us blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait, why is he only going to do it till then? What's he going to stop for? Well, the reason he only preserves us blameless until he returns is because as we've learned through this study, when Jesus returns and we meet him in the sky at the rapture, at that moment, our bodies will be redeemed and we'll receive bodies incapable of sinning. So after that, God doesn't have to do that same sanctifying work anymore. 
You see, right now, because of our salvation, I want you to make sure you understand this. Because of our salvation, our position before God is that we're sanctified and set apart and blameless. That's our position. Our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus. We have been forgiven and sanctified and set apart to spend eternity with him, and we're righteous in his sight. It's just that in our practice, we don't always act like who we are in our position. You see, we're, so we're, we're positionally sanctified. It's just a matter of whether or not we're going to be practically sanctified. Our, our future is secure. Our present is a process. And God's desire is that we would live like who we are until he returns and gives us new bodies that can't sin. And then the next thing I want us to see this morning is that number three, we're to, we're to remember God's faithfulness to finish what he started. We're to remember God's faithfulness to finish what he started. Verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. And we, just, and we did just cover some of this ground, but there is a... There's a future application I want us to see and a present application I want us to see. Like we just saw, we could, we could say that this verse has an application to our position and to our practice. God, God, is, God is going to be faithful to complete the work that he started in us the day he saved us and sanctified us. This is a great verse on eternal security. But he's, he's going to complete that work when we meet Jesus in the sky and we get those new bodies and we're going to become and practice who we already are in our position. Now Colossians 1.22 says, God's going to then present us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight on that day. This will be a reality at the Lord's coming. He will be faithful to bring that to pass. Verse 24 of the book of Jude says, God will, be, well, God will present us faultless before the presence of his glory. God is going to be faithful to finish that work he started when he sanctified us in our position before him. He will ultimately make that a practical reality in heaven. Now, from a, a present standpoint or from the standpoint of us being practically sanctified or, or sanctified in our practice, Paul is reminding the Thessalonians, and God wants to remind us this morning, that the same God who has called us to be holy, sanctified, and blameless in our practice will be faithful to do that work in us. As we've seen, he's the source of the work, and he desires to do that work in all of us. He wants us all to live lives that are full of peace, holy, sanctified, and set apart and blameless. God wants to do that work in us. He is willing to do that work in us, and he will be faithful to do that work. We don't, we don't have to worry about him holding up his end of the deal. Philippians 1, 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being wholly sanctified. It's going to be a reality in the future, but until then, y'all, it's a process. Remember what we learned a few months ago in 1 Thessalonians 2.12? Remember what it says? It, it says that, that we would walk worthy of God, 
who hath called us unto his kingdom and glory. God's going to present us holy and blameless in the future. But in the meantime, listen, we've been called to walk worthy of that calling now. And we, and we die to ourselves as the God of peace sits on the throne of our lives and calls the shots. And that's how we live lives that are filled with peace. God is willing and he wants to give us peace. He wants to sanctify us wholly. And he's going to be faithful on his end to complete those purposes. The problem is us. The problem isn't that God isn't willing to hold up his end of the deal. It's that we don't hold up our end of the deal. He'll be faithful to do what he said, but we have to be faithful to do what he says. That, and we need, to, we need to die to self and let that God of peace sit on the throne as he, as he leads us into complete sanctification and blamelessness. And then as a result, we have peace in our lives. But, but, but there's a path to that being a reality in our lives. Because Jesus says in John 17, 17, he says, he brings up this whole idea of sanctification again. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That sanctification process that, that, that God wants to do in our lives, it's directly connected to his word. That, that process of being sanctified, that process of being blameless as the God of peace calls the shots on the throne of our hearts, it happens through time in his word and through following his word. And, and, and as we're doing that, we're filled with the peace that only comes from God. You see, you know what our problem tends to be? We want God's peace but we don't want to get it God's way. We want the benefits and blessings that God provides, but we expect him to do that when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And God says, I want you to have a life of peace, but you got to come through me to get it. If we think that we're going to experience God's peace without sanctification, and without a life that's set apart from the world and unto God, it's not going to happen, man. It's not. You'll never have it. So God wants to sanctify us, and he will be faithful to do it, but he's going to do it through following his word. And then in Philippians 4, 6 through 9, we see a couple verses that we, that we looked at today and, and in recent messages. But I, I want us to take a closer look at this passage because, my goodness, this thing is packed full. Pay attention. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So listen, with thanksgiving, we, we, we come before God and we lay out to him all the things that we're going through and all of the worry and all of the anxiousness, and we bring those things before God in prayer. And then here's what will happen. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. All of our emotions, all the, all the things going on in our hearts and minds, it will, it will, it, God will, will keep them. God will protect them. Verse 8. 
Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. That could be some of our problem too. No wonder we don't have peace. We don't think about what he told us to think about. We think about things that are contrary to what he told us to think about. We don't think how we ought to think. We don't live how we ought to live. And we don't pray how we ought to pray. No wonder we don't have peace in our lives. Verse 9, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. See, God wants to give us his peace, y'all. It, it is available to us, but to access it, we need to live how we've been called to live, pray how we've been called to pray, and think about what we've been called to think about. Isaiah 26, 3 says it like this. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. And what I'm trying to make sure that you see is God wants you to live a life of peace and he will be faithful to supply his peace. But according to these verses, we've got to do what we've been commanded to do and think about what we've been commanded to think about. And we've got to pray the way that we've been called to pray. Now, in, in, like I said, as we began the message this morning, as each of these last three messages of the of these past three weeks at the end of each message we've kind of taken the three verses we've studied and three verses that appeared like they could potentially be disconnected and and we kind of took a second to connect all all of them together all these rapid fire admonitions and so we, we've taken those three verses and we've and, and we've pulled them all together to see what God's saying to us and see what he's saying is connected that's what we've been doing and so the way it shakes out with verses 22 through 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5, is this. God has called us to be holy and completely sanctified and blameless. That's the call on our lives. One of the ways that that's accomplished, y'all, listen, it's by abstaining from the appearance of evil. If we want to be blameless, then we better stay away from the appearance of evil. And it isn't just that God has called us to be holy, sanctified, and blameless. It's that he's empowered us to do it, and he's faithful to complete that work in us. And, and he does that as we die to self and allow him to sit on the throne of our lives and call the shots, and we do what he's commanded us to do. And we live like we've been called to live, and we pray how we've been called to pray, and we think about what we've been called to think about. And as we do those things, as the God of peace is sitting on the throne of our lives and calling the shots, God shows up with something that passes all understanding. And it's his peace. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what's going on, he shows up with peace, and he gives us the only real peace that exists on planet Earth. His peace. But we only have access to it by doing it His way. So, so, so let me ask you this morning, do you abstain from the appearance of evil or are you so inwardly focused that you don't really think about anybody else like that? 
Are you holy, sanctified, and blameless without spot as a chaste virgin before the Lord? Is that characteristic of your life? God is faithful to make us sanctified and blameless, but we got to do it his way, y'all. And the result will be a life of inner peace and a life of peace in our relationships. Father, we, we love you. And God, we thank you that you have given us access to your peace. We don't, we don't have to be a, a victim of our circumstances. We can, we can find peace even in the midst of trouble and trial and tribulation, God. You've given us access to it. Oh God, would we be holding up our end of the deal? You want to give it to us. You will be faithful to give it to us, God. But you've also called us to let go of the reins and to let you sit on the throne of our lives and call the shots so that we can live lives that are characterized by complete and total sanctification and live lives that are characterized by complete and total blamelessness. God, I pray we would take what we've heard this morning. I pray that we would take it seriously, God, in a world where we have gotten very acquainted with the liberty we have in Christ. God, I pray we would think about our other brothers and sisters and how what we do affects them. And I pray, God, that you would be pleased through our lives. You are worthy of us being a chaste virgin in your sight. You are worthy of us being wholly sanctified. And you even give us the unbelievable benefit of peace coming when that's characteristic of our lives. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you.